0: I'd like to share with you a familiar story this morning, something that you may have heard perhaps a long, long time ago. Um, uh, I remember uh, the first time I heard the story and it struck a chord with me, and I'd like to share it with you. It's a story about uh, a man named John Griffith. In the 1930s, he worked as a controller of a huge railroad bridge across the Mississippi River. Every day at certain scheduled times, a huge bridge was raised so that barges and other ships might make their way down the river. And according to schedule, John would lower the bridge so that the freight and passenger trains could rush across. In the summer of 1937, John Griffith took his then eight-year-old son with him to work for the first time. The boy was excited to watch the big railroad bridge and the trains and boats, and also to see the control house with all the levers uh, that his dad had control over. His father took him to an observation deck so that he could watch the boats and the trains go by. And at noon, John put the bridge up to let some ships go by since there would not be another train coming for a while. He made his way to the observation deck where the two of them had lunch together. Just as John was telling a long story about the trains and the boats, he was startled by the shriek of a train whistle in the distance. He quickly looked at his watch, and he noticed that it was 10:7. In the midst of his storytelling, he had forgotten that the passenger train, the Memphis Express, with 400 passengers on board, would soon be roaring across the bridge. Without panic, but very quickly, he leaped from the observation deck and ran back to the control tower. There he placed his hands upon the massive iron controls, and started to close the bridge. But just before pulling the lever, he glanced down beneath the bridge to see if there were any ships beneath it. And there, a sight caught his eye that made his heart nearly stop. His son had slipped from the observation deck and had fallen into the huge gears that operate the bridge. Though the boy was still alive and conscious, His left leg was caught in the cogs of the main gears. John knew that if he pulled this lever, his son would be crushed. His eyes began to fill with tears of panic. His head began to spin. What he could do was take a rope, rush to the observation tower, tie it, lower himself into the gearbox, free his son, bring him back up to the observation deck, make his way quickly to the control tower and lower the bridge. But no sooner had he thought of it, he knew that there was no way that he could do it in time for the train to make it across. Again, closer than ever, the train whistle sounded, and he could hear the wheels clicking over the tracks and the puff of the engine in the distance. And then he looked down. That was his son. But there were 400 passengers on that train, which was roaring toward the bridge. But John Griffith was a father, and this was his boy, so he knew what he had to do. He buried his head in his left arm and he pulled the master lever. The massive bridge lowered into place just as the Memphis Express roared across the Mississippi. And when he lifted his face, his, his head, his face smeared with tears, he looked into the passing windows of the train. There were businessmen casually reading their afternoon papers, uniformed conductors looking at their large vest pocket watches, well-dressed ladies in the dining car sipping coffee, and children pushing long spoons of ice cream into their mouths. No one looked at the control house. No one looked at the gearbox. No one looked at him. A true story of a father who would give his son and his son's life for the sake of 400 passengers on a train. When I first heard the story as a boy, I thought that couldn't possibly be right. Um, It must be a fable. And over the years, I've heard many versions of the tale, and you probably have too. But as it turns out, Um, now with some dates and names it appears to have some legitimate roots some truth and the story is stranger in reality than it would be as an allegory as a tale Because as a story that you might give to someone with a good moral, uh, you could easily see how, well, to make the point of the story, a father would somehow look away and pull the lever and, and give his son's life. But what real dad would do that? Would you? And imagine what he would have to say to explain the afternoon's events to his wife. Upon arriving home, what real father would, knowing that he could get down there and save his son, but risk the lives of 400 strangers? It's a fascinating story because it puts a little bit of perspective on a story that we've known for centuries, a story that we've known for thousands of years about a father who would choose to sacrifice his son it's a story that we have carried as a symbol of what it means to be a follower of god someone who holds up the emblem of sacrificing one for all or one for the many would you please open your bibles to the book of matthew we are at matthew chapter 26 In the book of Matthew, chapter 26, we catch up with Jesus and his disciples. They have been preparing uh, and getting ready for the Jewish Passover feast, which is the largest or most significant holiday in their calendar. And as they begin to get ready, uh, they make their way to Jerusalem. And upon arriving in Jerusalem... Uh, Jesus tells his disciples to go into the city and that they're going to find an upper room prepared. You probably recall these details, but we pick up the story here um, in uh, chapter 26 of the book of Matthew. And Jesus had gathered his disciples, and they were in this upper room. And when evening came, he was eating with them at the the table. This is verse 20. When evening came, chapter 26, verse 20, book of Matthew. Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve, and while they were eating... Jesus began to speak to them. First, they were concerned with Jesus' cryptic tales about betrayal and about backstabbing. But then, verse 26, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples. And he said, take, eat, this is my body. The disciples sitting there listening, thinking about uh, the events of the coming weekend. were not even paying attention to what his words were. They are recorded here, but I could just see the room and hear them arguing and, 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 and notice that none of them actually understand Jesus saying, this is my, my body. And then verse 27, he took the cup and gave thanks and offered it to them. And he said, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus was giving a symbol of what he was going to do literally. He was giving a symbol, both in the bread and in the juice, of what he was going to do physically, emotionally, even spiritually. That he would give himself, his body, his blood, body and blood of one for the forgiveness of the sins of all. What's interesting about this story in comparison to the one that I read to you earlier is that the son is in this position by no accident. He doesn't slip down into the great gears of suffering and 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 confusion and the gears of indecision. No, this son is sent by his father. This son willingly comes. This son is offered body and blood just one for the forgiveness of many. I've always struggled with this concept. I'll tell you why. Because sometimes when I read the story and I hear Jesus saying, this is my body, this is my blood. Uh, uh, my mind can't wrap its head, my head around the idea that it's just one man, one person, one being giving his body and his blood for all of us. Because my sense of fairness and equality says, how can the blood and body of one person, how can the sacrifice of one person actually make a difference for so many? Sometimes I think, uh, what is in this being, this person, what is in his body or his blood that could actually make a difference, even just for me, let alone all of you and And the rest of the city, the country, the nation, the world, the generations. But what we fail to understand oftentimes, especially even here in the presence of God and in his house, is we fail to understand who the Father really is. And who the Son is. The Word of God tells us that the Son is God. Just like the Father is God. In fact, that it is through the sun, through the word made flesh, that the universe was created. And it, it, it's through this particular person, the one who's speaking these words, this is my body and blood, that you were formed. It is through him that our world was formed. And not just our world, but all the worlds. All the galaxies and all the planets. He created them. He made them to be. A thousand sons would not be worth just this one son. And yet the Father offers him up for insignificant people like you and me. It's incredible. The reason Jesus can say this is my blood for the forgiveness of many Is because he is a God and you and I are dust and specks. And we need to see this difference. We need to see this difference because if we begin to understand how minuscule we are in the grand scheme of the universes, then we will begin to see the size of the gift. Oftentimes we ignore it. We think that Jesus was just another man like you giving yourself up for me. We might even applaud that. The book of uh, uh, the Apostle Paul says sometimes, uh, very rarely would you give your life for somebody. But we've seen those. We have stories like this one of this father giving his son for 400. And we think what an enormous sacrifice. But, but you don't understand. That's one boy and many others whose life is worth more. But compare you and me to a God, then there is no question. And so we dismiss his sacrifice. We take it lightly. Yes, we claim it. and We, we believe that Jesus died for us and, and for all. But, but we diminish his sacrifice because we want to bring Jesus from a God down to somebody else, some other human person. And we lose sight of the enormity of the sacrifice. But if we caught a glimpse then we would understand how one can make the difference for all. And today, as part of Jesus' own example and through his teaching and recommendation, we want to remember that. We want to pause and take stock of the enormity of the sacrifice. How the blood of one can be poured out for the forgiveness of many. And as we participate in the emblems of communion, to begin to recognize how insignificant we are in the sight of this great God, and yet how willing he is even then to give his son for you and for me. It is a tremendous privilege to participate we in the Adventist Church practice what's called an open communion. That means all are invited to participate, whether you're a member or not of the church. And uh, if you have children with you in the congregation, um, we would leave it up to you to determine whether or not they understand the meaning of these symbols. It is not something that we take lightly because this sacrifice was too big, was too immense, but God did it for you and for me. So I'm going to invite the elders, um, those that have been called, to please come forward. And they will um, uh, come and pick up a basket. Please come forward. And a tray. And they're going to stand in front of um, the sections of the church. And as they prepare, I'm going to invite any of you who wish to participate to simply uh, rise, make your way out of your left, and come forward and... uh, Receive a a, a portion of the bread and of the juice and then return to your chairs. Um, And um, as we prepare, please prayerfully come forward and um, uh, take part in the emblems. And we will return to our seats and participate together. Let us pray. Gracious Father, we are eternally grateful. There is no way we could actually express gratitude in a way that would be befitting to the enormity of your sacrifice. To give your Son for us. For us. But in whatever way our souls can muster, Lord, we give you honor, glory, praise, and gratitude. And we thank you. And we ask that you would now bless these emblems That as we participate in both the bread and the juice, symbols of your son's body and blood, that we might be reminded that he would make that sacrifice and did just for us. Please, Father, be with us now as we remember and we give honor and glory to you. Amen. And Jesus said, take and eat. This is my body. Take and drink. This is the blood of the new covenant. We want to respond to God's mercy and uh, to his generosity, but also to his commands and his directions. This morning we want to invite you to participate in the example that Jesus left for us. Because not only did he leave these emblems, these symbols of what he would do, he also commanded us to do something. He said, as I have loved you, so now you too love one another. And since the disciples didn't quite understand the concept, the Bible tells us in the book of John that Jesus took out his outer garment and he began to kneel down and wash their feet. The Master, the Lord, the Son of God, crouching down at your dirty feet. And he said, if I will do that for you, then you could do it for each other. So we want to invite you to participate in the foot washing, um, and we uh, have prepared three different locations uh, for you in the uh, main social hall, families, uh, couples, um, anyone can join us there. If you'd like to, uh, you can find a partner, uh, and uh, there's a room just for men, the youth room, which is directly across from the bathrooms, and a place uh, for just women, which is the uh, beginner's classroom nearest the door. Nope. Small. I'm sorry, the small group classroom just past the kitchen. Right. Okay, thank you. Um, so we want to invite you to find a partner, uh, pray about it, pray with one another as you participate and uh, participate in the food washing and then return here for our closing song and benediction. Uh, let us move uh, reverently and uh, quietly through the, through the campus. And you can leave your cups in the receptacles at the door on your way out. Let us go now and serve one another in love.